We would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners and custodians of the lands on which we record from today, the peoples of the Kulin Nation. I also pay my respects to the elders past and present. I extend that respect to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples here today. Source, a new podcast from Cappy, where hosts Emma Evans and Thurman Wise get to the source of our daily rituals, speaking with entrepreneurs that are changing the face of our day-to-day. From making our bed to a glass of wine and everything in between, we give you a peek into the leaders making our daily rituals serve us better, support our communities and bring positive change to our surroundings. Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome to episode three, season two. I love saying it. I love the countdown now. Mm-hmm. And I feel the like build- you say it backwards. Like, I feel like it should be season two, episode three, but you say episode three, season two. It's all good. There's no rules. Yeah. In the US, we probably just do it backwards. Yeah, just right. Because. That makes sense. So episode three, season two, season two, episode three, <laughs> if you're tuning in from Australia um, <laughs> with a very special guest, we're at Cappy, big fans of Alice Zeslovsky, award-winning author, broadcaster, chef, just all around amazing multitasker of all things unique and interesting. And going to really just have a nice chat about food today, I think. Yeah. I mean, who knows where it's going to go? Who knows, who knows where, where it's going to go, but like, what is your favorite dish to cook, even though both you and I are not that talented in the kitchen? A charcuterie plate. That's mine. <laughs> Does that count? No, don't you make like Mexican, like you're pretty good at making Mexican dishes. It's like salsa. Yeah. But again, that's like, I like a, I like a no fire cook. You gotcha. know, I'm like, mm-hmm. what can I just get from the fridge yep. and plate? Okay. Maybe after today's chat, we can have a challenge or something. I think we should. Yeah. Okay. How about for you? Often I prefer to bake. So something like banana bread or cookies. But recently I was sick about two months ago, like the rest of Melbourne. And I actually just was like, Emma, you can do this. And it's going to sound so pathetic, but like making a chicken soup that tasted good, I felt like it was quite an achievement for me and gave me a little bit of a pep in my step that like I could do this because as you know, my husband is a very good cook. And so I do often just default and rely on his talents. He's pretty good. He's pretty good, but yeah, chicken soup. That's pretty basic. Hey, we need a little soup sometimes. At least you use fire. To no, I used a slow cook. <laughs> well, still, slow, you used heat. You used warmth. Yeah. Well, enough about how terrible of cooks we that are. we are. But hopefully we get some, some pointers today. But we'd love to introduce the amazing Alice Zeslovsky. Again, award-winning author, broadcaster, chef, and welcome. Thank you so much for having me join you, for allowing me to join. (laughs) And I would imagine that if you're listening to this podcast, you know quite a bit about Alice already. But for those who, you might be a new experience. Would you mind giving a little a little intro about some of the things that you're up to recently? Uh, sure. I write columns and books. My uh, probably most 
recognisable tome on the shelves of uh, cooks around the world is In Praise of Veg. My new book, The Joy of Better Cooking, will hopefully be on your bookshelves come October. Uh, (laughs) I also am a broadcaster. I host the Saturday Breakfast Program on ABC Radio Melbourne as well as various other sort of live events. I love a microphone and I love a spatula. So if I'm not working, I'm you know, working hard, hardly working, I'm cooking in my kitchen (laughs) next to my elevator shaft, which you can hear. (laughs) It sounds like I'm in space (laughs) through the headphones. It's good. It's very good. For me, one of the big questions that I had for you, and, you know, I think you just kind of outlined it a bit, is you're a very busy, very, very busy person. In this space of, you know, rituals and, and finding time, How do you bring it all together? Uh, I have a three and a half year old. So she forces us to be present and to check out of work. You know, as soon as I'm on my phone, she is, you know, her, her eyes are burning a hole into the back of my head. So it's very difficult to multitask actually much. Well, I won't say it's difficult to multitask. Like I'm a natural multitasker, but it's more difficult to multitask as a parent because I think what I've learned and actually the busier I get, the more that I relish those moments of just doing one thing, you know, like I'll put all of my devices down and just go and have a dance with her. And it's just that, you know, I can't schedule a time for that. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) I have to be spontaneous, which is fine because I'm very comfortable doing that. I'm actually probably less comfortable having a schedule, which is why my previous career as a teacher, you know, was not long for this life. (laughs) I was a teacher for, you know, sort of a third, a quarter of the time that I've been in the food industry. So, yeah, this is my, it's my real job. I would imagine though that you've probably from teaching though, you've probably picked up a few skills that you use in your day-to-day? A lot of people in the media and in many different fields are secret teachers and you're right, they're very transferable skills. You know, walking into a room with a clear sort of uh, a goal or objective of, of what the key learning area is, being able to communicate information, being able to hold an audience's attention, all of that stuff kind of stays with you. And I was an English teacher in history and geography. So all of those kind of the knowledge and understanding of culture is kind of part of my USP in the food industry. You've just hit all of my favorite topics. I don't, I don't, do we want to talk about politics and geography and history? <laughs> well, I get to do that now, you know, on my, on the radio, I get to talk general topics and general interests. When Shinzo Abe was assassinated, you know, I had to break that story in Melbourne. And when Shane Warne tragically died, you know, I had to hold space for his hometown to talk about that. And I really do think that because I was a teacher, I'm able to kind of wear all of those hats and give everybody a chance to have those conversations. So, yeah, I mean, once a teacher, always a teacher. It's just a different classroom now. I feel like you could probably teach us a little thing or two, given we're new to the podcasting game and <laughs> you're broadcasting, but often Thurman and I have to like, we sort of like have a pre-game chat before the podcast or we kind of get in the zone. What about for the broadcasting? Do you feel like you can just switch it on or is there anything you do to kind of hone in on that? Yeah, when I first started, I was a lot more kind of focused on rituals. You might have just heard my little alert go off. Like I'm still a rookie, you know what I mean? I think people people do things for, for many hours and, you know, you talk about flying hours, but I do think that muscle memory kind of kicks in and you just you need to do less 
to get into the zone. I get into the studio an hour before I am on the air. So that's plenty of time for me to get in the zone. And in fact, you know, when I do live gigs, I'd actually prefer not to have too much time to ruminate, you know, give me like the adrenaline kicks in and just like, boom. So you kind of don't want to marinate in that cortisol for too long. So give yourself, if you are someone that is nervous about public speaking, you've got to kind of talk yourself into it. But if you are a natural kind of high energy person, don't give yourself too long because you'll lose that spark. And then, you know, I used to, Thurman, you'll love this. I had a crystal um, that I like a like an amethyst that I would put on my desk and that would be kind of my focus stone. But what I realized, you know, with, with crystals is it's all intention setting. So now I just set that intention into myself. You know, I've got that in, intrinsic motivator and, and intrinsic kind of focus. I say, you know, right now my job is this and then I will move on and do my next job. So yeah. You know, it's all just reminders, you know, it's like we use these things to remind us and then eventually, you know, the hope is that you don't need the reminder, right? You can just... It's just habit. Exactly. It's who you are. There's actually this really beautiful video. I want to say it's nowness, but I'm not sure. It's a high dive in Sweden. And they just put this camera on these people that are going to do the high dive. And the people that spend the longest time preparing for it are the ones that don't jump. Whereas like the people that just go like... And it's funny enough, it's the younger kids... The younger kids just get up there and they're like, all right, I'm diving. Yes. But like, it is like, I feel like, especially with this podcast, like what you were saying is if you give yourself too much time, (laughs) you almost scare yourself out of it. That's it. Yeah. Because of the, I've just been listening to a a podcast about, you know, the inner voice and the inner saboteur. And we do, we, we talk ourselves out of it. So the key actually that I learned from this podcast is to talk to yourself in second person or third person, you know, rather than saying like, you can't do this or I can't do this. You say, you know, you can do this, like be your own coach. So you can do this podcast, Emma and Thurman. (laughs) (laughs) What's the name of the podcast that you were listening to? Uh, Hidden Brain. I've got a few. Yeah, I've got a few that I absolutely am addicted to. Hidden Brain being one of them. I love You Must Remember This, which is like an old Hollywood podcast talking she's a she's a film historian uh, an academic it is amazing I love anytime that somebody looks surprised is just perfect you know it's just like you'll love it and then something like here's the thing Alec Baldwin I think he's a fantastic interviewer but again like he's been doing it for a long time so if you listen to to very kind of fledgling episodes of his podcast compared to now he's learnt to listen he's learnt to ask questions more concisely it's kind of you see that journey as well yeah. I mean, I guess it, everything's a journey, right? Like, I know. I mean, I noticed like for us, even just the comfort level of being able to kind of go back and forth from like day one. Oh, I get nervous <laughs> about listening to the first episodes <laughs> versus. Yeah. I haven't gone back in a while. With but. some distance, you can be like, how cute were we? But right now yeah. it's still too cringy. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> I used the word like a million times and now it I'm- was good that the team gave us like active feedback mm. and that's what we wanted. And we just took it on the mm. chin. It was all helpful and constructive. If you think about what you're doing when you say like, is you're kind of encouraging your mouth to open and you're probably taking a breath. So you, you're probably now taking a breath instead of saying like. <sighs> yes. <laughs> on your journey, have you received any feedback that was just like, you're like, oh, forever grateful to this person for telling me. I mean, I'm sure there must have been a few along the way. So much. You know, we're 
but we're all on a spectrum of self-improvement, right? So I think the moment that you think that you're just the best and you can't get any better is probably the, the moment that you should change what you do or change your mindset anyway. So one of the earliest pieces of advice that I was given that, that I will always treasure was by a director called Richard Sarrell, who said that if you come from a place of sharing, whether that's on stage or on screen, it's a much nicer delivery of the information. And I learned that even, you know, I, I was doing a presenting course so that I could then teach my kids a presenting course at school. And, um, you know, if I think about how much I use that information now for myself, you know, I actually got a message from Richard maybe a couple of months ago saying I was listening to the radio on a Saturday morning on my way to golf and I heard this friendly voice and I thought, she's good. And then I realised it was you. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> uh, but we also have a fantastic, you know, I seek out self-improvement. So I've got an amazing breath coach that I work with. I've got a coach that I'm, I'm now working with at the ABC who works with all of the presenters and everybody, regardless of what point they're at in their career, is still wanting to get better because, you know, you just, it's exciting. I think it keeps things fresh. If you just kind of keep doing the same stuff, you get stale, you know, like flat, still water, six-month-old flat water in plastic. <laughs> we need those bubbles. I need like that one. In a glass bottle, bottled at the source. That's it. (laughs) Local. (laughs) I think that's so cool to hear, though, because I think, like, and again, this is one of the reasons why we wanted to have these conversations with people like yourself, because I think people hold certain people to this kind of level or this, like, you know, they're at a higher structure where you don't think about you needing coaching for breath or for presenting. You know, it's like, I think for a lot of people, probably in your audience, like you're, you're a polished pro, you know? (laughs) Thank you, David. (laughs) But like, we all need a little help sometimes, you know? Always. And even just somebody to say you're on the right track, you know, Mm -hmm. just to kind of, I, I really just enjoy it. And to be honest, you know, I love, I love deconstructing and really kind of at a granular level, understanding what I can do to get better and what other people are doing that's working really well. And I think that's just, you know, an overactive brain. <laughs> I need I need to constantly be kind of thinking, you know, what else can I do? It's probably, oh, you know, that's something for my analyst, right? <laughs> like that's kind of, what is that not enough factor? <laughs> Someone to break it down for me. That's you. it. Someone to break it down for me. So you mentioned earlier, though, that you're launching your second cookbook. Third. Third. So how's that journey been then from the self-improvement? Like, do you look back to the first and think, wow. Totally. I've, I'm approaching it totally yeah. different. It's like. Yes, 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 yes. You know, from, from one to three, I think it can't ever feel like you're going through the motions. So number one was a book for kids. And I felt like, you know, each of my books is really clear in the problem that it solves. So the first book that I wrote was very much because having been a teacher, I saw that kids had a disconnect with food, didn't really know or understand the importance of, you know, connecting with food but also connecting food with culture and understanding the food chain. So that's what Alice's Food A to Z was about and that was 2015. And then within Praise of Veg, you know, that came through more of my food literacy work with Phenomenom and which is a you know digital toolkit for teachers that's all about connecting kids with veg. And I, I was just like, this is so great. You know, the kids are really connecting with food now 
but it's the parents that need help to actually figure out how to cook the vegetables to make them delicious. And that's where In Praise of Veg came about. And now after that book came out and, you know, it's blown up, it's been received so gorgeously, so beautifully and sort of generously around the world. And I realized that the big problem that people have is, you know, they, they might cook, but they don't necessarily find the joy in it. And they set limiting beliefs on themselves. You know, they say, oh, I'm not a good cook or, oh, you know, I'm just kind of, I'm not really that kind of confident in the kitchen. So this is the book that will help to encourage people to jump off the deep end, right? Like step up to that high dive and leap off with joy. And actually there's a freedom in recognizing that you don't need to be a good cook. You just need to cook and you get better every single time. And there's a real freedom and joyfulness in that knowing. I need to put a pre-order in for this book. <laughs> yes, like, literally, this I, book is It's for you. I wrote a page yeah. for you. I have that conversation of I'm just not a good cook. I set so many limiting parameters around my kitchen abilities. So, so do I. I just open and I look at the recipe and I'm like overwhelmed and I just close it and go, oh, thank God my husband's good. <laughs> okay. Well, no, you are absolutely my target demo then. And, you know, <laughs> the book does that obviously through my own kind of growth mindset tone, but also the publisher has kindly given me like four pages of recipe. So the stuff that you are sort of wondering as you're cooking, you're thinking, am I doing this right? All of that information is on sort of gently lilac pages. You've got grid photographs to show you at what point that's the right color of caramel or whatever. So it kind of just hold, holds your hand. Oh, yeah, the photos help. The photos that's help. it. The photos help. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like a, a kitchen cheerleader, this new book, and I'm really excited for people to get it into their hot little hands. Such good timing. The perfect Christmas <laughs> That's present. That's it. <laughs> I'm selling one at a time just by joining yeah. people's podcasts. <laughs> by the time I'm done with all the podcasts out there. <laughs> Count two more. That's it. One question I have for you with In Praise of Veg, I mean, like, I honestly have seen it probably in every bookstore window on my walk around Melbourne. With the new book, is there a certain pressure that you felt with the massive success of your last book to? writing the new book or has it has it changed the way that you've approached this third book from previous it's really funny i started thinking what next even when we were shooting in praise of veg because i knew that i would miss the process of writing the book so much and it wasn't until the book went to print that i started to feel that kind of trepidation and the pressure because i think that you kind of at the end of the day and what i have to keep reminding myself is that all you can do is the work. You actually can't control how the work will be received. So yes, definitely I feel the pressure, but I'm not letting that pressure paralyze me because then I don't get to do the thing which I really love, which is the work. You know what I mean? Like I think that I remember oh, years ago I saw an interview with Renee Zellweger and she was asked, um, I think it was when Bridget Jones, you know, one of the sequel Bridget Jones films came out and she was asked how she feels, you know, being back on the trail and does she feel the pressure? And she said, actually, she stops reading. She doesn't read the reviews. She doesn't look at, you know, what audiences are saying. She creates the film and then she moves on to the next project because otherwise you get stuck on this roller coaster of feeling like you need to be, you know, 
affirmed by others. It needs to be an intrinsic motivator and an intrinsic sense of achievement. And that actually comes from putting the work out there in the first place and like knowing it's good within yourself. How long does the process take? I've always been curious. Longer than you think. Around, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> so, because if you think about it, a lot of that stuff is like upfront IP. So it's information yeah. that's somewhere within your mind palace. And then you have to figure out which rooms do I want to open within this text in the instance of the joy of better cooking. So that I started, I mean, the ideation of that, some of those recipes are years old, whereas some of them kind of are very on the fly, but the concept was kind of created and nutted out in the months, even when I was starting to promote In Praise of Veg. The first thing that I did was I reached out to friends of mine who had friends who didn't yet know me or know my work because I needed kind of like, you know, clean skin. What would you call it? Like (laughs) unsullied (laughs) in order to interview them. Like I did one-to-one interviews with people who said they weren't good cooks or thought that cooking was boring or just didn't want to do it. And I just sat with them and just talk to them for like an hour at a time because ultimately you surround yourself with people like you. So most of the people in my life are cooks and are foodies. Mm -hmm. So I really needed to kind of, you know, walk a mile in their oven gloves and figure out what it is that's kind of setting people back. And there are just general kind of fears that people have, you know, I'm going to burn the food or it's not going to taste good or I've I've just never been in there so I don't know where to start. So how can I break down each of those limiting beliefs? And then I thought about what it is that I do that's different, you know, what's my special source? And I think that all of my work is just full glitz, right? (laughs) It's just like dialed up. So I knew that Aesthetically, I wanted to bring that again, but I was also mindful that in this instance, you know, people, if they're new to cooking, then they're probably going to get overwhelmed by some of that kind of cookery stuff. So, you know, all of that stuff was taken into consideration. And so to answer your question, Emma, it's been honestly kind of years in the making and a book takes between, say, two years to 18 months. Wow. That does take a strong mindset. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's a marathon, not a sprint, that's for sure. Yeah, for yeah sure. Just like listening to my answers. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> they are undulating. <laughs> so the fourth book is in the works. Yes, it is. Saying. It is. I've got a meeting right after we jump off. I've got a meeting with a publisher about another book that I kind of, they just come to me. You know, sometimes they come to me in the shower. Sometimes they come to me, you know, when I'm kind of like wake up at 3 a.m. and put it in my notes. And sometimes they make sense and sometimes they don't. You know, I'll wake up and be like, dog banana. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it that like one of my, because I guess I'm very similar to you, like in, you can't control when ideas come to you. Like for me, the shower is my like, if I'm like, I just need to think, yeah. hot shower. But then sometimes you get this amazing idea and you're like, I've got it. And then you go to tell someone <laughs> and then they look, they look at you with this blank stare like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> Yes, that is so. And and I think actually the reason why the shower is a place of inspiration is because we spend so much of our time in beta waves, you know, kind of that fight or flight. And when you're in the shower, that's kind of probably the first moment in your day where you're just like taking deep breaths, not thinking about anything else. Suddenly, um, it comes to you. But as you say, you know, ideas come through you and sometimes those ideas are really very crystal clear and you can articulate them and other times they take a little while but sometimes I'll have an idea and I'll try and articulate it and it still doesn't make sense but three years later I'll have the same 
idea pop up and, oh, now's the time, you know. And I'm very fortunate, you know, my husband Nick is like my sounding board, my bounce board, and he knows, you know, if I had to describe what he does really well is that he is able to translate some of my big ideas into really kind of nitty-gritty. You know, his background is as an osteo, so he massages the details. (laughs) (laughs) And then being in the food industry, our listeners love to hear where people draw inspiration from or, you know, things that you love to do to kind of get your creativity flowing. Or I guess as a foodie, you know, maybe it is just going to brunch every weekend. Is there anything that really is is very Alice that you like to do? Well, uh, it will come as no surprise that the first place I find inspiration is at the markets. Melbourne is just so fortunate to have farmers markets and physical markets of Melbourne that we can visit. And it's the produce, you know, it always changes seasonally and you go to the, you know, you go and you see gorgeous radicchio and you think, wow, you know, look at the colour of that. I wonder what that would go well with. Hmm, probably orange. You know, and recently I, I went on a trip to North America to, I was in Canada and I got weepy over radicchio in Italy, in Toronto, and they had to like come over to me and say, excuse me, ma'am, are you okay? Yeah, I was not okay. I was like, it's just so beautiful. So yeah, I definitely find inspiration from produce, from going out to restaurants, which is just Honestly, having restaurants back open, we will never take it for granted again. You know, even when we walk up and find out that the restaurant is full and they can't seat us, we walk away and say, good. (laughs) Yes. Thank you. We'll come back. Also on that, just special shout out to Radicchio because (laughs) (laughs) so I was on a work trip last week in Sydney with my colleagues, Sam and Jen, and they don't like Radicchio. And there was, we were at like 10 William Street and they had a radicchio salad. And I was like, all I want to have is this radicchio uh, salad. And they were like, we don't have radicchio. And I was like, oh, did you God. have it for yourself? No, but oh. on Sunday, on Sunday, I was free of salmon gin <laughs> and I had a radicchio salad and it was fantastic. Yes, Thurman. Well, I was at, in Sydney. What is with Sydney and radicchio naysayers? Or, or did you, did you import the naysayers from Victoria? Oh, we did. Yeah. Uh, I brought them from Melbourne. So we were at Pasky in Sydney and it's like a little wine bar and I wasn't weeping over this radicchio salad. It was like leaves with this just gorgeous Chardonnay vinegar dressing. It really was such a delicious salad. And as we were leaving, it was the sort of place actually where we had dinner and then we went downstairs and had more snacks. Like we finished, we had dessert and then we went down to the wine bar section because I had to move our table and had more. And then as, as we were walking out, I saw them carrying an almost full salad from the table behind us. There was like a table of 10. And they said, yeah, they had a few kids and they just didn't eat the salad. And I was just like, if it weren't in the times of COVID, I would genuinely have eaten that salad because it was that good. And I was just heartbroken for the kitchen, for the grower, for the kids who didn't like even give it a chance. Honestly. Ugh. Sounds like they need to read In Praise of Veg. Sounds like they need to read Alice's A to Z, In Praise of Veg, <laughs> and then learn to cook the freaking radicchio with some confidence from the joy of better cooking. So you can see, I mean, like, it's kind of where do I find the inspiration? I also find it actually from having these conversations with people and finding out what makes them tick and what I can do to kind of remove barriers. It's true. Like, I get really excited when someone says to me, oh, I don't eat mushrooms. 
I go, why? And I don't say it like a judgmental, like, why? But I say like, oh, tell me more. You know, is it because you didn't eat them as a kid or was it a textural thing? Like, how can I help you solve this problem? (laughs) How can we fix this? How can we open your mind? Because when people remove limiting beliefs on themselves in the kitchen, what other beliefs do I hold that I need to get rid of, that I need to shake off? Well, I mean, it's just like, I mean, so many things that it's just how it's presented to you, right? You know, whether it's history, politics, religion, cooking, like if you've had a bad experience, that's going to affect the way that you interpret anything going forward, you know? That's it. And even with the new book, so with the joy, you know, like some people think of the joy of cooking, which is, you know, as a North American, Thurman, you would have heard that. But in Australia, most people think of the joy of sex, right? Like Because that was kind of the seminal work (laughs) of the (laughs) 70s. And if you think about both sex and food, like you kind of don't need an instruction manual. You kind of just need to let go, right? So that's kind of what I'm trying to encourage people to think is like stop setting rules on yourself and thinking, am I doing this right? Like you're not going to stop and go, oh, I'm worried I'm going to, you know. (laughs) You're not going to go to prison for a bad state. No. (laughs) You're not. Your friends might not ever come. Like maybe I can start with just cooking for like one person. But also, I mean, okay, and this is the thing, like I saw your face then, Emma, like I think we kind of do think about what other people are going to say about our cooking, right? So yes, cook for you, like make delicious food that you know you're going to like. And then if you're worried that it's under seasoned or anything like that, put stuff on the table that people can then like put a pinch bowl of salt and some pepper. And if you are having people around and you're not sure, do they like coriander or not, put the coriander on the side. Like remove those kind of moments that could end in you feeling bad about yourself or somebody else feeling awkward. Yeah, it's funny. I've always like lent towards making or baking rather than cooking. So maybe I need to apply some of my baking to the rest of the cooking. And you're not alone um, because baking obviously has a really much more precise following the steps and you know you're going to get the same result. So that's a control thing. Yeah. So that's something probably, yeah. And, and I think actually if you remove some of that need for control in the kitchen with your savouries, then you might actually find yourself more loosey-goosey <laughs> in other parts of your life. Yep, that's for sure. Just- I was at Chef's Hat yesterday and the level of instructions on how to use the pan overwhelmed me. So it's a lot to overcome. Also, I think just for a background, Emma's background is as an accountant. Oh, so yeah, that makes so <laughs> much sense. Yes. Thank you, Kevin. <laughs> People probably want to know where you're, what's, what's. One plus one, definitely. Well, <laughs> you'll be very happy to know that cookbook creation often starts with a spreadsheet. So. Yes. <laughs> Perfect. Music to my ears. <laughs> but see, then on the other side of things, I was just thinking, you're like, cook for yourself. There's certain things that I do in the privacy of my own home around <laughs> food. Like there's some weird flavor combos that like I've randomly stumbled upon and every so often I feel like in a space of comfort, I'm like, oh, have you ever tried like a chocolate chip cookie with tartar sauce? And people go like, what? And I'm like, I know it sounds crazy, but it's good. And everyone's like, no, not trying that one. So I'm never one to yuck a yum, Thurman. So one of these days when when I come around for dinner, please, please make me <laughs> a chocolate choc- chip tartare. Whoa. Wow. But yeah, you're right. And we do cook for ourselves differently. But I think the, the point is taste your food as you're cooking it. And when you serve it up, kind of give people the option to change it as they need to as well. 
We're going to walk away from this and we're going to give it a go. Okay. Yes. I'm making lunch. I believe in you. <laughs> so with all of the things that, I guess, with all the accomplishments and all of the new pieces that you're bringing into kind of your universe, you know, what are some of the things that still excite you? Like what excites you to, to continue to grow? My team's. I love people and I think if I had to think about what my superpower is, like I've mentioned it a few times, like I'm I'm a woo girl, like I'm the ultimate, I want to make everybody the best at what they do and bring out the best in people and that's definitely a teacherly thing to do, right? So I'm excited to create because it means that I am affording my team gainful employment uh, <laughs> and I'm affording myself the opportunity to spend time with people who genuinely inspire me. So I think that's probably something, I mean, it is an extrinsic motivator because it's about bringing other people in, but definitely, you know, I'm, I'm an extrovert, I'm a real people person, so I'm always finding inspiration from others. I've got an amazing community that's growing, you know, online and, and in person that I know that I'm helping you know, adding value to their lives. So that certainly drives me, particularly when I'm feeling flat. You know, if I'm walking down the street, feeling all my feels and somebody comes up to me and says, excuse me, you know, are you the one with the glasses from News Breakfast? I love, you know, love that feel-good nachos that you put out. Thank you. You can't help but kind of be buoyed by that and realise that, wow, that's having a genuine positive impact on somebody's life. And I guess I think that you only get one life. <laughs> you only get one life, you know, and YOLO got misused through the noughties, but you get one shot to really kind of create, put stuff out there that helps to kind of, you know, move things forward, shift the needle. So I'm going to take my shot. I mean, I don't know. I do wonder, you know, I don't always jump out of bed and go, Woo, but most of the time, or well, something, something will inspire me and I'll go, ah, there we go. There it is again. There's that spark. I'm going to add the word woo to the end of my mantra <laughs> yes. from now on. I'm going to go like, woo. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Woo. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. yeah. Team meetings, everything. That's it. Just like, guys, bring it in for a quick. <laughs> yeah. Woo. 100%. Well, because I, I like coached, you know, the year eight netball team and all of it. And I got to do my mid mid game. <laughs> Braveheart speeches, yeah. <laughs> you know, all of that. I love I love a good pep. I love a good pep and sometimes I have to pep myself, but it's where it's, where it's at. It's a Monday. Ah. And do you have any, so like just thinking back of what you were saying about like helping parents and, you know, try to work with food for their children, are there any challenges that you've found in your experience sure. with trying to yeah. introduce introduce food or or I guess I guess I mean you're writing about it to some degree. Yeah, yeah. So Hazy has a like a micro account on purpose. You know, it's private. If you're listening to this, you've got young kids, you're curious, you know, check out and Hazel had. But this is an account that I have kept from when she was like, you know, sort of four, four, five, six months old, all the way through overhead watching her learn to eat. And she has been like the ultimate kind of hypothesis proof of, of some of the things that, that I kind of assumed would be correct. And then I think the biggest challenge that we're facing now is that she, now that she's at kinder, she has those external kind of peer pressure influences that are sort of some of the language that she's using, she's never used before, like, I like this and, oh, I don't like that, like, which is 
fine. That's normal and it's natural. And I think a lot of parents freak out about it. And so we just are really conscious about how we talk about food around her. And when she says something like, I don't like curry, which is what she said yesterday, we shift it and we go, oh, so you don't feel like curry today. She goes, yeah, I don't feel like curry today. And then she tastes it. She's like, I like curry. It's like, well, duh, because it's delicious. So (laughs) I think the biggest challenge for parents is probably feeling like if their kid doesn't eat what they've put in front of them, they're a failure, which is something that you really need to like remove that pressure from yourself and recognize that a child's kind of nutrition is cyclical and it's weekly rather than daily. So they might have eaten heaps at daycare or at kinder or just kind of at breakfast. And so at lunch they eat less, but that's in no way an expression of your success. So the best thing you can do is kind of sit on your hands and bite your tongue, (laughs) you know, even like the coerciveness of of something as simple as saying, we'll just give it one bite is removing the agency from the child and and kind of showing that you don't trust the child enough to give it a try when they're ready. Put it out in front of your kid and eat it in front of them yourself. And that is something that is straight away. Role modeling is really important. Making sure the food tastes good is really important. You know, taste it before you put it out. And if you wouldn't eat it, then don't give it to your child. (laughs) I know, I know that sounds really elementary. I know, I know, but it's really kind of, I think you just get really stuck in ruts because you're in a hurry or because you worry that, oh, you're going to put too much salt in that food and it's going to be not great for their kidneys. But that's kind of, you're going to get that sort of level of salt, sodium from processed foods. You're not going to get it from like a pinch of salt flakes on the top of some broccoli. Gosh, you brought up such a good point though with the external bit. Yeah. Like at some point you got to let them out there. Mm. Scary. And it's a whole world from what they're seeing. You know, yeah. Oh. And so, so, so like last week they had a, a birthday at kinder and she came home and I said, oh, what did you eat at kinder today? She said, cake. And I said, great. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like because our natural instinct is to then try and like put moralistic kind of values-based judgments on their foods because we think that that's going to help them build, you know, healthful habits. It's not. It's just going to make them feel bad about themselves because they don't have, they're concrete thinkers, they don't understand nuance. So if you say, oh, that's a sometimes food or oh, cake, that, that's a bad food, then they're going to go, but I like cake. Does that make me bad? And they won't say that to you. No, 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 they'll internalize it. And then that will form this like gritty weirdness that they live with for the rest of their lives. Yeah. And then they're the person, you know, that's at the dinner party, the 40th dinner party, and they're like, I don't eat cake. That's it. That's it. <laughs> or, oh, no, thanks. I, you know, oh, no, no, I don't want radicchio because I didn't grow up with it. You know? For all you radicchio <laughs> haters. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no but it's funny because now i'm like i mean as you're speaking i'm like of all the foods i don't like i've just been presented them in the wrong way or i have a preconceived whatever that's it it's not that you don't like radicchio it's that you don't like the way that the radicchio has been served up to you before but that doesn't mean that Mm -hmm. this delicious salad that thurman is eating on his own is going to be you know what i mean like I hope that helps you. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. We work with kind of a meditation coach at Cappy every week named Ryan Mannix, who's just an absolute gem of a person, but he starts off all of our sessions with this, what are you feeling today? And he does it in a way of saying the feeling is arising and not I am the feeling. And because he's like, if you say I am tired, 
then that's what you're going to be. But if you understand that it's just a feeling that comes and goes, you might be tired some days, you might not. But very similar to how you were discussing the food. Like if you say, I like this, I don't like that. You become the... Yes. What, whatever that feeling is. That's it. And, which it. and it becomes a part of your identity. Yeah. You're the guy that doesn't like coriander. But it's like, actually, maybe, maybe not. Maybe you're, you might change. I hope you do. I mean, I love, listen, coriander on everything. <laughs> I'm getting a little bit better with That's coriander. good. That's good, Emma. Look, we're, on, we're all on a... We're all on a journey. Coriander <laughs> continuum. We are. We're all on a journey with coriander and with all things. So, no, I really like that. I like that. The tiredness is rising in me. But <laughs> it'll, it'll yeah. go. Yeah. Ebb and flow. Exactly. I like it. Yeah. It's even an interesting thing. For, I'm thinking about it like right now. My husband is Malaysian Chinese. So, often we've had conversations about what was it like what did you eat for Christmas or what foods do you gravitate towards? And even that kind of cultural element plays a big role as well. I remember even when he started to hang out with my family, it was kind of like, oh, is this what you, you know, there was a couple of foods that he was just like, oh, guys eat a lot of pumpkin. Um, (laughs) That's actually quite fun, I find, like just learning about food in the cultural way as well and uncovering different things and what it means to them and what it means to my family. It is. And there is an absolute boom town. You know, it is the golden age, I think, of people expressing their culture through cookbooks. Uh, there's some beautiful cookbooks coming out now from new voices and cuisines that we might not otherwise have experienced before. And, you know, that's sort of, I think, part of the magic of, of being in this industry is that there's always new new stuff to learn. But I think, I mean, like you were saying, like it's it's just such a beautiful time to be in the industry. Like, I just feel like we're so many ideas are shifting. We're being introduced to so many cultures and it's so amazing. People like you really championing what food can mean. You know, it's just, it's just not something that sits on a plate or that you get at a restaurant. Like food is such a vehicle for a change. It's such a vehicle to tell a story and to interact. You know? It is. And ultimately, it's just a really great way to hook people in and get them around for dinner. <laughs> exactly. By the way, I'm coming over for that whenever you're making radicchio. You're on. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, Alice, we've had such such a beautiful conversation today. And we just want to thank you so much for, for joining us. But before we sign off, we have kind of one last little question that we like to, to finish off with, which is, you know, I think... At the time, there's a lot of doom and gloom out there in the world and, you know, there's a lot of crazy news. But what we really want to kind of understand is, is there anything out there that excites you about tomorrow? Like, is there something that at the moment you're just like, oh, this is, the future is bright? Sure. I still get to work with kids a lot and they are so engaged and so active and so just so much more aware and empowered. I think that the next generation coming through feel like they can affect change in really kind of positive ways on a personal sort of individual level, but also more broadly in, on a community level, on a you know, global scale. It's like um, their sense of limitation. That's come up a lot, but it's like they are willing to leap off that high dive, right? Because no one's told them they can't yet. So I think that's the thing that excites me the most is like, just don't tell them. <laughs> just don't tell them they can't. <laughs> you can do it. You can you just, do it. Just say woo, jump off woo. the high dive and, <laughs> you know. That's it. That's it. Well, Alice, thank you so, so much. I think beautiful conversation. I've got a few things I need to try in the kitchen. 
now. <laughs> yep. I'm going to revisit a few foods. Good. But yeah, thank you so, so much for all of our listeners out there. Be on the lookout for the new book coming in October. Pre-order now. <laughs> Pre-order now. <laughs> We've already sold two during the recording of this podcast. Yep. Thejoyofbettercooking.com or you can find it on Instagram at at Better Cookbook. How good is that? How good is that tag? I can't believe I got it. Better cookbook? What? That's one of the ones you don't even look up because you're like, oh, it doesn't <laughs> it. Yeah, someone's out there. Yeah. But great. So yes, please check out at Better Cookbook. Thank you so much for tuning in to our wonderful episode today with the amazing Alice Seslovsky. We had such a beautiful chat and we really hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please give us a comment, a like, a follow. Uh, if you really like it, please share it on whatever social channels you might want to share it on. And please tune in at our next episode in two weeks with the amazing Anthea Lucas Bosha, the CEO of Melbourne Food and Wine Festival. Until then, ciao for now. <laughs>